I think it's safe to say we need to grow our own industry. And we kept the stories that the patchwork of materials were telling. He was one of the first people in the UK to publish photographs of a little known architect called Le Corbusier. We've seen kingfishers in Mayfield Park and we've seen fish in the river and we've seen all of these wonderful things from just quite basic interventions around the river. The incredible thing about stone is that it can reduce a project's embodied carbon by 90%. Visiting a site where you have heritage at its heart is always an amazing experience. Provenance is, is going to be a very important question in materials. You're listening to Talking Landscape, a podcast which explores the big issues surrounding placemaking, identity, nature and the environment for conversations with leading landscape architects. I'm your host, Paul Lincoln, editor of Landscape, the journal on which this podcast series is based. In this episode, we're zooming in on the importance of materials as we design our way through the climate emergency. Joining me are Vanessa Norwood and Duncan Paybody. Duncan is Director of Landscape at Studio Igret West, which has just delivered a new six-acre park in the heart of Manchester. More on this in just a bit. But first, I'm joined by Vanessa, a curator and consultant who is Creative Director of the Building Centre from 2018 to 2022. The Building Centre, which is based in central London, has a long history of championing sustainable innovation in architecture and the built environment. With a prolific public programme designed to shine a light on materials through sensory experiences, the 91-year-old institution provides a platform for practitioners to showcase materials that are both beautiful and sustainable. As part of this programme, Vanessa Norwood, Creative Director of the Building Centre for the past four years, commissioned Homegrown, Building a Post-Carbon Future, a new exhibition created in collaboration with Material Cultures, which reimagines how we use land at a local, regional and national scale. Vanessa, before we jump into this new exhibition, I'd like to talk about the building centre itself. How did the centre first come about? So the building centre was born actually at the Architectural Association, which is a school of architecture around the corner from the building centre's home in Store Street in Bedford Square. So the uh, Architectural Association is a very interesting school of architecture. In 1925, the architect George Gray Wernham asked Frank Yerbury, who was then secretary of the AA school, for space in the school's basement where he could show a client who he was designing a house for three brick samples. And so after the client left, the brick stayed and materials were added uh, to this space under the staircase at the AA and it formed a growing collection of materials and the materials would have been used by students to understand materials used to draw from, um, literally sort of sketch from these materials and really learn learn about how to use materials in their design projects. Um, I was at the Architectural Association for many years, I should uh, add here, not in the 1930s, but then I moved to the building centre around the corner where I became creative director. So the AA's history was really interesting to me so what happened with this materials library under the staircase at the AA, it grew so big that Frank Yerbury had to find a new premises for it. And out of that growth of materials, a commercial concept of the building centre was born. Frank Yerbury became the first managing director 
And he held the ambition that the building centre would connect the world of manufacturing with the practice of architecture. He sounds like he was the most amazing man, Frank Yerbury. He was a passionate photographer. He was really interested in architecture. He led tours around the world of, of architectural association members where they would go and look at uh, buildings and photograph them. He was a brilliant photographer. He was one of the first people in the UK to publish photographs of a little-known architect called Le Corbusier. Uh, so he was this incredible figure that was very inclusive for the times, very forward-thinking. The Building Centre became the first place in the UK to host an exhibition in 1936 called Women in Architecture. And it made manifest Yerba's intention that the Building Centre should become a platform to further uh, enhance discussion and inclusion in the profession. So I joined in 2018 and I wanted to very much reconnect the public programme to this great history of showing materials. Early on in the centre's life, Yerbury said, the basis of the centre must always be an exhibition of materials and the policy should be that only such things are shown as are of value to the building industry and the public. Vanessa, tell me what is the significance of the materials library? It's, it's really interesting, I think, looking at, at the history of the materials library, because I think we are starting to have a much more nuanced understanding of, of where our materials come from. And there's been some great research by academics like Neil Shassel looking into the slightly problematic history that a 1936 building centre might have displayed. This is one of the reasons why the Material Cultures exhibition and the Material Reform book by them is, is a really interesting look at how we have extracted materials historically. I think the original intention is a brilliant one, that you can there's somewhere you can come and visit where you can see materials, you can touch them. In the case of the amazing straw installation we have by Material Cultures, you can smell it. It smells fantastic. So I think they're having a place where you can come and experience materials on a one-to-one -one is really important in specifying materials. I think what I'm very uh, enthusiastic about the research that material cultures have done is that we can actually understand a lot more about where our materials come from now and the, slight, the problematic history of colonial practices in extracting those materials and the supply chain that comes with material use. So uh, as creative director, I was really interested in looking at all aspects of a materials library, from how equitable the materials extraction is to the sort of end use of a material that gets specified. Um, I was in the exhibition just yesterday afternoon with a couple of colleagues, and I did start stroking some of the materials, which really quite beautiful and it was really interesting to go back to the the, the the key showing you what each of those materials appear to have been uh, composed of. Um, let me ask you why do you think seeing and touching materials is so valuable to practitioners as well as to the public? I think it's it's really important because I think those materials if chosen wisely have a have an effect on our well-being and I think what's very interesting for me is that the discussion is really changing. We've had 
some very exciting lectures as well alongside the public programme. So we had the first sort of big exhibition I did was in 2019 with DRMM, Marsh Morgan, called Forest of Fabrication. And alongside that show, we had a very beautiful talk on the Magus Centres. And one thing that Alex Dereika talked about in designing their Oldham Magus was that actually to specify wooden handles in the Magus Centre was really important because if you're undergoing chemotherapy, touching metal is a really uncomfortable, cold experience. So the public programme has allowed us to have a much uh, more expansive way of thinking about material specification. And as you said, stroking materials is key. The timber and straw structure that material cultures have designed for the exhibition is incredibly tactile and it really allows you to have a relationship with that material. So not only to understand on an intellectual level how the material might work, its sustainable credentials, but also to see how it makes you feel. And I think that's a really important thing that we maybe have forgotten when specifying architecture. Materials have been removed, architects might sit in front of a computer and specify material without having stroked it. So I am all for stroking the materials that you get to specify. Now, if I just reflect on two of your previous exhibitions, you've, you've, you've done one on timber, you've done one which was in some ways quite terrifying on stone. There's a very large lumps of stone hanging from the ceiling, I, I, I remember. Um, what makes these materials so promising for the future of designing uh, buildings and spaces? So the new Stone Age, which um, you needn't have been terrified by, <laughs> it, was, it was very safely installed and quite beautiful. That was curated by Armin Tahor of Group Work, Steve Webb of Webb Yates and Pierre Bidot from the Stone Masonry Company. And I think the incredible thing about stone is that it has, it can reduce a project's embodied carbon by 90% compared to a typical steel or concrete frame, which makes it a really interesting and remarkable material. We had a huge stone canopy outside the building centre, which actually in retrospect, I wish I had written stone in really big letters on it because a lot of people said, that's a great fab concrete canopy you've got outside the building centre. So it slightly um, did its job too well, I think. The starting point for that exhibition was the amazing group work building Clerkenwell Close, which is a love letter to stone. And I think for me, what was really exciting in getting to commission these shows is that it allowed us to see and understand how we could use materials that are actually more traditional, but in new ways. So engineers are doing an incredible job, people like Steve Webb, of thinking about how we can use these materials in innovative and new ways, which is something that Frank Yerbury would have loved I wish he'd been around to see the Stone Age exhibition. I think it it speaks beautifully to that original intention of innovation in materials use. Is it your observation, looking back over those two very significant exhibitions, that we can just swap out materials like concrete and steel for more sustainable options? Or is it more complicated than that? Um, what, what do you think the hurdles are that we need to overcome? it's really interesting to think about swapping them out. I mean, I, I would add here that my job as a curator and a cultural strategist is to make a platform for these discussions. So I think the real experts are the engineers and the architects who are putting this into practice. I think 
the sort of problems we face are scalability. So in the exhibition, there's some really beautiful <clears throat> materials such as hempcrete and all these sort of mycelium insulation panels by people like H.G. Matthews and Biome that are really pushing innovation forwards. But the next stage is how we can scale up so that we can start replacing the sort of oil-based materials that we've been using, like sort of PVC, that we really need to now remove from the supply chain. Okay, well, we'll, we'll come on to an expert in just a second. Let me ask you um, just a few more questions about the current exhibition, um, Homegrown, Building a Post-Carbon Future. Um, tell us, first of all, why you commissioned this particular piece. The thing that I think is really exciting about material cultures is they're really pushing the discussion around bio-based materials and the supply chain. Their book's great by the material form published by Mac. It's a really interesting book. It allows a much more thorough thinking about how we extract materials, how we can really start to change the way we think about specifying. They're very careful in the book not to say we need a revolution, that it's quite a practical book, how we can make changes within the way that architecture is practised. The exhibition itself is very beautiful. It's that sort of one-to-one -one delight, as you said, the strokeability. They've made three films, which are really interesting, on timber, straw and extraction. So I would urge everyone to go along and watch the films. The show was also uh, sponsored by Built by Nature, who I think are really interesting as a network. They funded the exhibition and they are particularly looking at accelerating the timber building um, industry to transform it in Europe. And I think that was a very beautiful meeting of minds. Uh, so I think material cultures are really interesting in the way that they're pushing the discussion. It's a much wider story that they're interested in and looking at. But they're also making some great architecture. This morning I went to visit uh, the Phoenix Project in Lewis by Human Natures, which is a new project just currently sort of put in for planning. And that will be an amazing, sustainable community. And material cultures are actually delivering some of the housing as part of that project. And I think that's really one to look for. That's a project which is going to be about scaling up, about the potential of using bioregional materials and uh, sustainable architecture. Now, the emphasis of the show is on what we can produce here in the UK. How big an industry is this currently? And why should we aim to be less reliant on importing building materials? Well, I think it's safe to say we need to grow our own industry. I think we've lost contact with land. We have a sort of slightly a strange relationship with our landscape where we think it should be sort of beautifully manicured. I think that the interesting thing about bioregional use of materials is that historically it was always there. So this morning I was learning that in Lewis there was a very important bioregional industry for basket making, which was a local industry. Willow was grown. I think we were more connected to landscape in the past. Landscape has become a rather benign um, site for us. And I think what's really interesting in the Material Cultures book is that they talk, you know, about soil, about over farming. And I'm also reading Isabella Tree's brilliant book on rewilding. I think we've lost 
that connection with our landscape, which I think homegrown really touches upon and can move that forwards. I guess the problem with supplying materials from around the world is the supply chain. You know, that a lot of the, the embodied carbon will come from getting your material from a far-flung place. If we can limit the amount of specialist materials we take from abroad and have a much sturdier industry in the UK, it's got to be good for all of us. Manchester is celebrating the opening of Mayfield Park, the city's first public park built in more than 100 years. Built on the site of a historic textile printing and dye works, the Studio Egret West Design Park is full of references to its industrial path, both in design and in its choice of materials. Duncan, what was the site like before? Mayfield, as we found it, had the Mayfield Depot, which was a, a station that was built as a relief station um, to the main uh, Manchester Piccadilly station. That had had its roof stripped off and the structure stripped off and, and, and presumably sold and recycled or kind of moved elsewhere several years before. So you had this big kind of elevated platform level and you could almost sort of sense the, the ghosts of the trains and the passengers that were previously there. But instead of the train tracks being there, in the kind of sunken areas where the tracks would have been there in the track bed, there were all sorts of things that were starting to colonise and there were birds um, moving around. And, and, and as somebody who's from Manchester, my my kind of experience of the city centre is, is, is definitely not of that. It's not of nature. It's not of open space. Manchester is very fortunate to have lots of large civic spaces where you can have markets and events and gatherings. But in terms of green space, it's not a city that's been built around that. It's a city that's developed around industry. And that affects how the public realm and the public spaces work. So we haven't got that kind of sequential movement through green spaces or to kind of stepping stones of green spaces. You know, Man Manchester's a city of waterways and rivers. And quite often, they're kind of backwaters or they're behind buildings or underneath buildings. And at Mayfield, I didn't even know that there was a river there before we visited and, and certainly walking around site, you see that it's kind of behind these eight metre high walls and underneath buildings. And there really are the kind of the main kind of ingredients of nature there, but it's just not really being kind of celebrated or kind of tapped into. Um, but it, it's, it's such a characterful site, such an amazing site, even on day one. And how does it look now? It's, uh, it's a park first project. So we were very fortunate at the height of lockdown to receive over 20 million pounds worth of government funding to develop a park first with no development. So what you see now is a six acre park of a meandering river that's been opened up out of its culvert, stepping or kind of um, level changes down to that river, a huge amount of habitat created. And the park's been designed as a sequence of different spaces that kind of sit along this river. So as the river meanders towards the retained heritage Mayfield Depot building, it kind of forms these almost kind of island-like spaces, which creates this quite interesting sequence of different zones. So at one end, it's slightly more legible in terms of we have a, a main sort of open gathering lawn space. We have um, meandering walkways alongside the river. We have bridges that cross the river. Um, and then we have at the far end of the park, we have um, a new destination play space that again, Manchester was severely lacking. So there isn't really anywhere to to go as a family in terms of engaging with, with kind of playful activities in the city centre. And then in the centre of the park, we have an area that we've referred to as the wildscape, which is the zone where the river Medlock can overflow at certain times of the year. 
And so it's it's the real balance, I think, of um, a park that provides space for people, but also a park that provides space for for wildlife and habitat. And let me ask you a little bit about the river, because my understanding is that before you started work, it was hardly moving, it was sluggish, it was polluted, but but it's cleaned itself up on its own. Can you explain how that happened? It's an urban river. So all, all the rivers that move through our cities are urban rivers. And unfortunately, until the water boards actually stop at certain points discharging into those rivers, we're always going to have a water quality issue. But what we've done at Mayfield is we've made tweaks and changes to the river, particularly at low flow, to effectively create a fall all the way across the river. So there's always a constant flow of water. And I think that's why when we first visited sites at low flow, it was just this sort of stagnant, dark lake of, it almost looked like oil. It just wasn't moving at certain points. There was no oxygen in it. There was no flow to it. And so then there's no kind of sensory element. There's no, there's, there's no encouragement of nature to engage in that. Um, and we introduced a series of different interventions from stone riffles to areas where we narrowed, narrowed the channel to just change how that river would flow and how that would behave. And it's amazing how much that's changed in terms of encouraging wildlife to come to the park. So even within, even actually during construction, there were all sorts of birds coming to sites while they were kind of digging holes and it was a big sort of muddy mess because they did the river works first and sort of moved away from the river the wildlife was already coming there whilst the people were, were kind of building it on site, which was a pretty sort of amazing thing to see. Let's talk about the industrial history. Tell us a bit about why that clearly became a very important part of the design process. There were clearly kind of remnants of that industrial past. That, that very kind of setting was kind of, for us, it was a very sort of key part of its existing character. So the way that we kind of tried to frame the design was to say that we shouldn't just start again and create something brand new. Um, we knew that as part of the master plan that we were keeping and saving the, the Mayfield depot building as the backdrop. So it was always going to have this kind of very visible connection to, to its past. And through the materials and through the design of the park, we were very sort of conscious that the park should feel like it belongs to that site. So um, that's why the materials that we chose all relate to kind of that heritage grounding in its industrial past. Um, and a lot of those materials were were new, but also a lot of them were either kept, saved and improved or in certain areas uh, removed and then relocated on site. So that was a big part of the strategy. Um, and as part of our original brief, we were challenged to make a world class park, which is sort of a quite an impossible brief to lay down because that's something that obviously plays out over time. But the other part of the brief was, can you design a Mancunian park? And our answer for that Mancunian question was, well, it needs to be wearing the, the Mancunian clothes. So it needs to be wearing the, the, the right materials of Mayfield, not just Manchester of Mayfield. And something that, again, if you walk across the city centre um, in Manchester, it's just sort of a monotony of, of natural stone that is probably sourced from another part of the world. Um, and Manchester's got so many amazing buildings. It's got so many amazing mill buildings. It's got all these waterways, but none of, none of its public spaces really kind of celebrate that. So by designing a public realm that really kind of connected to this post-industrial landscape was a key driver for our original design. And I suppose it was quite a risk because I think 
particularly in this country, that there's a real sort of focus from landscape architects to get out the, the shiny brochure of what paving you can pick from wherever. But actually within our design of Mayfield Park, none of these materials that we were putting down as the surface materials were expensive. They were, we were actually going for kind of quite low quality, but, but, but high durability materials that relate to this industrial setting. Um, but it was really the combination of the hard materials almost being quite background then allowed the abundance of nature and the abundance of new planting to really stand out. And so when you visit Mayfield Park, you're not walking around staring at the floor, you're staring at the whole setting and, and you're really kind of enjoying being close to nature, which again is, is what we felt Manchester was, was really lacking. And do you think, it's really fascinating, do you think you've referenced the building heritage or the landscape heritage of Manchester? We've referenced a bit of both actually. In the hard materials we've referenced the building heritage of Manchester. So brick is used a lot during the industrial revolution. A lot of it was sourced either in a local area or in Stoke. So where we had new brick we sourced it from Stoke because that's where the remaining um, trade is. We also reused a lot of brick and repurposed a lot of brick. Obviously, brick isn't part of the natural landscape aesthetic, um, but it was with, within the planting, which is where we try to sort of repair the river as a habitat corridor. Because if you look back through history, sort of even the early days of um, Thomas Hoyle's print works and dye works that were there, there are there are accounts of um, people people going for rides at lunchtime on a horse out in the countryside, which was very, very close to this site. It was sort of just beyond the site. And actually the River Medlock was this kind of quite picturesque meandering river through meadows. So we introduced a lot more meadow along the, the piece of river that we had. So we sort of repaired, repaired the site in a certain way, but referenced this really important part of its heritage. And to what extent did you take industrial objects which had come to the end of their life and still use them on site? We had a, a stretch of the river that was culverted and we were able to see from walking down the river that there were these interesting beams. So as part of our tender information, we suggested not reusing them, but we suggested almost sort of scattering them as interesting objects, as kind of almost sculptures in this kind of wilder landscape. As they were actually removing these beams, what became apparent was that how beautiful they were, but also how how solid they were. They're huge, these huge um, iron hogback beams that span the river and so at quite a late, late stage we actually changed our design to incorporate them because they, they were already spanning the river as they were so obviously to create new bridges well they were the, they were the perfect length to continue to span the river but just in different locations so the three pedestrian bridges that we have crossing the river in the park are all made from these hogback beams and it means that they're, they're, they're characterful. It means that we've saved a huge amount in terms of carbon. Um, but also it means that we have three one-off bridges that nobody else is going to design a bridge like this because we've designed it from the materials that we've found. And I think that's the interesting thing or the interesting direction that I think landscape architecture could go more towards is to perhaps step away from the product specification brochure um, and a bit like Vanessa was saying, really sort of get to know the materials and, you know, the, the point about touching materials and stroking materials and, and really getting closer to the materials is, is a really important part of it because it's interesting and, 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 and the design shouldn't just stop at a specification book. And I think we've, we've kind of done that in areas at Mayfield Park. 
Brilliant, thank you. Now, what I'd like to ask both of you is, is to think about 40 years in the future, because um, Vanessa, you, you've, you've curated exhibitions using a variety of materials. What do you think both architects and landscape architects should be thinking about next in terms of the choices that they make, either with the materials that you've already displayed at the building centre or perhaps with other materials yet to be, um, yet to be addressed? I mean, I'm quite excited about the sort of blockbuster exhibition I'm planning called Strokeable Architecture, <laughs> coined by you in this podcast. I, I think going into the future, the where materials are extracted from, the kind of whole story of your material is going to be something that's more and more, I mean, it is incredibly important, but we understand it more. We understand about the communities that live around a site of extraction. We understand the effect on them, we understand the effect of the material on our, our well-being and our health, that um, with this new movement of strokeable architecture, we realise that PVC is not something we particularly want to stroke and hang out with, that, you know, that we start to think about sustainable materials as ticking all of these boxes as being not only sustainable, but equitable. Do you think we might move to a point where we almost look at the the pedigree of every item in view in a building in a landscape and say to the designer I want you to justify it explain it um, how do we get there how did it get there in a sense to make that history a very central part of the the way that you would understand the site absolutely I totally agree with you provenance is is going to be a very important question in materials uh, there's a lot of people doing really amazing work on on Providence. The Timber Development UK are looking at uh, sustainable and equitable forest management because these things are really important to consider. You know how uh, forest is managed can be incredibly uh, positive for not only the people but the animals that live in in that space. So there's some people doing some really great work and it's interesting that a lot of these concepts are not yet understood like the big hoo-ha around 15 minute cities we we need to do a better job of explaining why the provenance of your materials and how they're extracted is the most important thing to us because it does describe all of the issues we face as i said from sustainability to uh, a fairer future for the everybody not only involved in in making our built environment, but living in it as well. And, and Duncan, in terms of the work that you and your colleagues are engaged on at the moment, how has how has Mayfield influenced your your thinking and your planning for the next the next few years? Having a far more forensic review of an existing site is a really key thing, and and also challenging of a consultants that you work with. So um, on Mayfield Park. The river walls look like a patchwork of, of different materials and on initial glance some engineering advice was they're done replace them brand new but actually there's always a better way of doing it and actually that isn't a, an acceptable answer anymore and i think as designers we need to sort of push for better answers on that because for example at mayfield park we kept the existing walls we lowered them in areas to create more daylight but we kept the material there and, and we kept the stories that the patchwork of materials were telling, 
But what happened behind the wall, there was an engineering solution that took the pressure off those walls. So actually they continue to have a design life and we haven't had you know, the, the huge amount of carbon created by either replacing it with something else or removing the existing things there. So really getting to know your site and really looking at what you can keep and retain and harvest from that site and put into the new site should be the starting point really of these things and then where we've got the shortfall then we look at other more innovative materials. The other thing that you've done is to bring a huge quantity of nature into um, an industrial site into a you know about the most urban setting in the UK. Again what lessons do you think there are for those who would like because the government uh, published its new green infrastructure framework just at the end of last month um, and I wonder again what lessons do you think we should all have in, in working out how to bring nature into some of the settings that traditionally appear to be quite hostile to the natural environment. I think I think part of it is a is a change of perception. No longer at a point where trees have to be in a straight line and in a grid, and we a hard space has to be one hundred percent hard. I think I think we're, we're all moving away from that. So I don't think we have to do too much to convince everybody. I think the other thing is looking at the impact of your project on a much larger scale so for example we had a river and rivers are rivers are highways for 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 nature to move along so if if you can make little interventions in a place that's connected as that in terms of nature you get huge rewards so we've seen kingfishers in mayfield park and we've seen fish in the river and we've seen all of these wonderful things from just quite basic interventions around the river and um I think celebrating that as, as a positive thing for learning, but also a positive thing for health and well-being and, and giving people access to nature who don't normally get it and, and the benefit of that. And I suppose just learning from the post-pandemic life where we were all at home for a bit and actually we all engaged in our local setting and we all we all looked a bit closer at and listened a bit closer at birdsong and things like that. I think we're at the perfect point as landscape architects to really kind of hammer that home to clients and say, this is great for all of these reasons. And no longer should we be really having to convince people. They should be saying, yeah, of course it is. The next edition of Landscape, the Journal of the Landscape Institute, is focusing on materials and will be available online and in print shortly. The Building Centre exhibition continues in central London and Mayfield Park is open to all in the centre of Manchester, just by Piccadilly Railway Station. Thank you. I look forward to seeing you again in a month's time.